pop quiz. You're reading an article and someone refers to a, quote, stereotypical mother. What image comes to mind? We're going to bet that the answer is not a black, single, adoptive mother of two young children, which is why we're grateful to bring you a conversation with someone who is exactly that. Misasha, you and I are both mothers, and given that our show is called Dear White Women, chances are there are a number of you who are or would think about becoming a mother. And so given our, you know, way of highlighting narratives that you might not have considered before, here it is clearly. Motherhood in the United States is intrinsically linked with whiteness. So it's time we confront that stereotype and break it down because there are many models of motherhood that are very, very normal. And especially given how much this country is in desperate need of love, nurturing, and the willingness to fight for our children, we need to celebrate all of us. So listen in for some concrete takeaways and action items that you can go ahead and implement right now on this topic. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations around race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Congratulations on the one-year anniversary of your book. Would you please introduce yourself? Thank you. I am Nefertiti Austin, the author of Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. I have been writing forever. I'm the adoptive mother of an eighth grader and second grader, and distance learning has just begun for both of them, and I already feel like I'm not going to make it. I love it. Let's just start with the truth. So we are super excited to talk to you today, um, in particular because since it's been a year since you wrote Motherhood So White, we'd love, and you know, just a few things have happened in that year in the world. Did everyone catch me, Sasha's sarcasm there? Yes, (laughs) just a few things. (laughs) I know, it's very subtle sometimes. Can you tell us a little bit about the interest in your book that you've seen in this year and how that's changed in particular with regard to all of the events that happened earlier this year with George Floyd, Amon Arbery, Breonna Taylor? Definitely. I mean, just the mere mention of those names. I mean, it seems like it, it almost took their murders. It almost took the murder of Amon Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd to, I think, really drum up the interest the topic that I write about, you know, almost deserves. And it was like out of something so tragic, something great happened. And that is, I got like way more interest in my book. And I write about motherhood, like racial hierarchies within motherhood and how there is, there are so many universalities amongst parents and amongst mothers, but culturally there are differences. And the fear that parents of black children, especially of black boys live with, it's real. And I think everyone had an opportunity to feel that fear, especially the video of George Floyd. And towards the end, when when he called out for his mom, I think that that's something that resonated with everyone. So I felt like it really gave my book and the topics, the things that I cover, a second look, maybe an opportunity for fresh eyes and a recognition that It is very important that white mothers, Latinx mothers, Asian moms, LGBTQ moms, that we really all come together because at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want to raise happy, empathetic children. We don't want to see our kids under the knee of an officer. And the likelihood of that happening for my son who presents as black is significantly higher 
than a white mom's. So I would say the last like four or five months really raised, I guess, the profile of my book as opposed to this time last year when it came out and, you know, definitely got a lot of attention, but significantly more late spring, early summer. I'm glad to hear that people were paying attention. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you think white moms, you know, need to know about this difference. But one of the things that we noticed on the show, and the stats sort of backed this up, is that white families just in the last sort of month or so are focusing less on that difference. They're focusing less on racism. And I get that going back to school during COVID, it's crazy times right now, right? Like online schooling, do you go back? There's a lot of fear, but like Black people don't have the option to get tired and check out of this conversation because Black people live it day in and day out. So in order to restore a little bit of this hope, you know, I think a lot of white people are feeling like, oh my gosh, are we still talking about, I'm so tired. Is it going to change? Like they don't understand that this is going to be a lifetime of work, but to restore a little hope. I mean, one thing you told us about was that change is possible. There's a very specific story you shared with us about what's been happening at your child's school over the last sort of decade or so. Yeah. So change is absolutely possible, but it does require commitment. I mean, people have to commit to and want to change. I mean, that's in any area of a person's life. And certainly the topic has cooled off for a lot of people, but for those of us who live it every single day, it hasn't cooled. So in in many respects, you know, sadly, it's business as usual. I would say the good news is I did see that Breonna Taylor's family was awarded $12 million. And, you know, so for every week that a Black person has been, you know, murdered by the police for whatever reason, someone's at least getting fired. Someone is being held accountable. It isn't happening as often and as swiftly as we need it to, but there have been, it feels like a little more retribution on our behalf. And like at my kid's school, for instance, we started this whole conversation about race and equity and white teachers teaching black children and language and perception and microaggressions, all of those things started gosh, in 2012. And so it has taken almost a decade to really move the needle at, you know, this one very small school in Los Angeles. And we're very proud of the work that we have done. But, you know, but for the parents, and I didn't do it alone, there were a couple of other moms and who really sort of stayed, we kept the conversation going. And it was like, hey, how are you today? Did you see this documentary and such and such? Oh, and by the way, I need to come and speak with you because I received yet another email where my son's behavior was described as aggressive or negative. And, you know, I checked in with the buddy who was white and his parents, they didn't receive an email at all. And the kids were playing together and the teacher's like, Oh, ha ha. So-and-so was just being rambunctious and, you know, being a little boy, but my child was not extended the same courtesy. And so so much conversation, so many emails, so much went into that, but we were able to, make that happen. And, you know, we were super fortunate. Our head of school, he came around, white man, and he was slow, but he came right on around. We appreciate him a lot. And we did have allies, our assistant head of school, white lesbian woman, she and I are very good friends. And early on, she was like, I understand. I hear you. Let's talk about it. What can we do to fix these things? So we came up with a lot of very specific, small sort of steps to pull 
the head of school and the parent body along. And so that's something we have to do, you know, on the macro level as well, to continue to move the needle, continue to talk about it, even though people are tired of talking about it. Okay, we're like, well, the laws still haven't changed. So we're going to have to keep talking about it. And people are going to continue to protest. And I love that the athletes are finally, you know, more than just Colin. I was team Colin Kaepernick, you know, years ago. But I'm so happy to finally see the marquee athletes stepping up. We're not going to play tonight. You know, we're going to wear these shirts with these names on it. And, you know, what's the young tennis woman? She just asked, you know, the critics complaining about her. And she just continued to do her job and win. And so, you know, we have to continue to bring it up. We will be that fly in the ointment until there is change. You know, I loved what you said about, you know, first of all, pop culture and people visible, like being able to use their platform. But if we take it back to one of the things you just said about that small change that was happening at school and having the ally, like if we assume that because we're talking about motherhood so white, we're having a bunch of other mothers listening to this episode. Could you give an example or a couple of examples of some of those, like that action plan that you did at your school that created some of that change? For sure. One example was with regard to curriculum. And when the fifth graders study colonial history, and so one particular afternoon, I was asking my son, you know, so what did you guys learn today? What did you talk about? And he said, oh, we were talking about the colonists and how the colonists planted all the crops. And I said, where? And so he was like, you know, during pre-colonial time. So I said, well, where were the Native Americans? And he said, oh, they lived elsewhere. And I said, oh, well, where were the Black people? Where were the enslaved Blacks and the free Blacks? And he said, oh, they had run off. And I immediately fired off an email to the teachers. And I said, that may not be what you taught him, but that was his takeaway. And I'd like to see the syllabus. You know, what are you guys actually covering? So when it was shared with me, slavery was nowhere in the curriculum. And so I said, well, how can you teach colonial America and not talk about how Africans were enslaved and brought to this country, forced to work for free to build this country? And they said, oh, well, you know, we're really sorry about that, but some of the parents aren't really ready for their children to learn about that because, you know, certainly it's very devastating and violent and so on and so forth. And so my pushback was, but we've been reading about the Holocaust for the last couple of years, and that's devastating and terrible. And six million people were killed for no reason. Then, you know, some idiot felt that they should be killed. And so, you know, how can we fix this? And ultimately the solution was we were able to, I was able to meet with the curriculum director as well as another head of school. And we were able to talk about ways to include discussions about enslaved people, how to talk about women, how to talk about Native Americans, all within colonial America, so that the kids got a more balanced understanding of what it took to build this country. And so when they read the Declaration of Independence, they're able to understand, oh, this too is a compromise document. And this is what was left out. And this is why the Native Americans are referred to as savages. And so that was implemented relatively quickly. So that's one very long example, but that was one thing that happened. Like, I love that because that is a very concrete example of a, communicating with your child and understanding what is actually happening and then having a partnership with a responsive school 
overall who's able to see your point. And any one of us can do that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think most places are open to suggestion. And, you know, that's certainly important. I have a friend who's working on her PhD, and she's studying, she's writing about cultural humility. And ultimately, I think for white people, that's what it comes down to. It's not about guilt. It's not about making someone feel bad. But I think it is about being able to be humble, and to be able to admit that, okay, there have been systemic egregious wrongs that have been committed against Black people, Black women for, you know, hundreds of years. And so let's go beyond you feel bad, oh, that's terrible, to action, like real action. And it's being open to it. And it's more than, we have so many parents, wonderful people who said, oh, well, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. And I love everyone. And so, okay, but we all see color. And there's nothing wrong with seeing race. So it's also being able to admit what's problematic about saying that and what's problematic about saying, oh, well, I'm not racist, as though that absolves each individual from their part. And so we all have a part to play. I just think we have to be open to stepping out there and to accepting, you know, constructive criticism and action items. Is that part of it? You know, the curriculum feels very specific and something that white parents can advocate for. Is that second part, what you mentioned about white families saying, oh, I'm colorblind. Is that something like a, we would be having a PTA meeting? You know, like, how do you interject in in those? Because I know I I wouldn't get those emails where your child is called aggressive. Like, those are very family specific. What other big things can we do as, like, non-Black? Well, okay, so even though you wouldn't receive that email, what you can do is empower your child and... Okay, so if the kids are playing together, let's say, and because kids see stuff, and if your child notices that my child, they're both doing the same thing, but my child gets in trouble for it, then, you know, the likelihood of a child standing up to a teacher, you know, I wouldn't suggest that. But your child can come home and say to you, mom, you know, we were, August and I were playing together, and I'm the one who pushed the truck and when the teacher said not to, but August got in trouble. And so, you know, this is what happened at school. And then you can contact the teacher and say, it is my understanding, or you can contact the black parent and say, you know, Hey, this is what I heard. Is this correct? And you can say to the teacher, my child admitted that she was wrong. And she said that, you know, her black friend or her Asian friend or whomever was punished for it. And, you know, what is that about? And so it's, so from person to person, from white person to white person, you know, I don't know how that conversation goes, but often the teacher will be far more responsive to you than they will be to me, because to me, they're going to feel A, sometimes on the defensive, like I'm questioning their authority, or B, I'm being sensitive because it's my child. So if someone else says, oh, no, I noticed the same thing and I saw that and I'm calling you out on that, Miss So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so, I think the teacher would be more likely to consider how punishment is meted out the next time. So that's also something. And, you know, other things I've been thinking a lot about, you know, distance learning and the digital divide. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to read about what's happening in the public schools or what's not happening, I should say. And, you know, another concrete step a person can take, whether or not your child attends your local school, is to offer services. If you could volunteer 
you know, a half a day a week or a day a week just to troubleshoot for tech. A lot of people take for granted that, you know, you press the button, Zoom comes up. Not everyone's able to do that. And so those are ways to, I think, begin to close some of these gaps within uh, communities and between groups as well. I love those. I think those are such concrete examples of ways in which everyone can take action and ways that are impactful and in that people might not have thought about before. And I also love that it is, that when you've been talking about this, it is a process and a commitment because I think people at times, like we have been discussing, you know, it's, they'll take one action and then if there's no immediate change, like, okay, well, you know, I tried and this is what I did. And I think just seeing that change over time, but that consistency and that intentionality behind it in what you were saying is so important. So thank you for sharing that. So, you know, we've sort of jumped way into, you know, it's been a year since you wrote the book. Let's talk about all these things. So let's actually talk about your book. As Sarah and I read it, we loved it. You know, and these are topics that we have not discussed on the show, in particular adoption, you know, because you wrote this whole book about your son, because he is, and, you know, about your journey to becoming a mother, which is, you know, it's such a great story and so relatable in so many ways, and yet so different in other ways. So we just want to start with some of the things that you discuss in the book. Like, for example, you talk about Black adoption. And that was a term that, you know, is unfamiliar to a lot of people and versus what we consider traditional adoption. The air quotes. <laughs> Feel the heavy air quotes that I just did. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So in my personal experience, my brother and I were raised by our grandparents. My mother's parents raised us and we were raised by them because my very young parents were part of the Black Power Revolutionary Movement. That's how they met. And, you know, as radical as they were, they also indulged in drugs. And unfortunately, both of them had drug addictions. And so over time, it definitely splintered our family. And with my father going to the penitentiary, my mother went to drug rehab. So that really just kind of left my brother and I. And so we were back and forth with grandparents for a number of years. And then finally, I think I was nine, we went to stay with them, like officially, like forever. And so we didn't go into foster care. There was no lawyers, you know, nothing like that. It was essentially a family decision. And I think I have like one paper somewhere I saw that my dad gave my grandparents guardianship of us, but we saw our parents. And so my mother did eventually move out of state, but that we had a relationship with our parents. So basically, Black adoption is just that. It is an informal family configuration. Typically, it's grandparents who are raising grandchildren or nieces and nephews and cousins. And it's a group that's typically related by blood, but not always, because we also take in neighbors. It's a known person. If there's a child in the neighborhood who needs a home and, you know, we still want to maintain a connection to that child, we want the child to feel known and loved and cared for, then that child might go with a neighbor or a church member or maybe even a teacher. And so it's just essentially sort of skipping the judicial system because, of course, Black people have a very tenuous relationship with the judicial system and fears, of course, that if we go and say, hey, I'm struggling, I've got this drug addiction, or I'm unemployed, or 
you know, anything that's happening. I'm too young. I, I'm not ready that we'll never, ever see the kids again. And unfortunately, that has happened too many times. And so that is basically, that's Black adoption. Just come on in here. I got you. I'll take care of you. And the kids maintain a relationship with their biological parents or birth parents. And so, you know, my parents, you know, eventually they were like siblings. So, you know, like I said, my mom had moved out of state. My dad was in and out of jail my whole life, but very close with my paternal grandparents and my cousins. And so it was sort of like an extension of, okay, it's my brother and I, but then yeah, my dad and my uncle, (laughs) my cousin, you know, it was like, we were all siblings. There's so much to unpack there about the psychology of it. My mom was adopted by her family when she was like four or something like that. And I'm like, oh, I would love to talk to you about the psyche of that at some other time. But, you know, so we talked about black adoption just now, Mm -hmm. but you have that other layer of being like, you then didn't do a black adoption. You went through the official channels to adopt. And so can you talk a little bit about not only what it was like for you to do what's not traditional, again, that air quotes, in the Black community by going into the official system, but also as a single woman. Okay. Well, I definitely broke ranks by going outside of my family and my community to adopt. So it really makes me an outlier, you know, among Black people. So Black people do adopt. So that's like number one. But I went outside of my family because there weren't any children to be adopted. I mean, everyone had a home, everyone was accounted for, which was a good thing. And so then that meant my desire to adopt. So my options changed. So that meant I either went foster care, the public foster care route, or I went private or international. And so I chose to go the public foster care route for a whole bunch of reasons. The biggest influence was my best friend is adopted and she's an adoption social worker. So I had been hearing stories about, you know, children in foster care and I taught kindergarten, first grade for like 15 minutes. And so like a third of my class were foster children. So I had an up close, you know, view of what that looked like. And so I think it was always sort of simmering in the background for me. And then my own upbringing, I don't think I put the pieces together though, until I was actually writing Motherhood So White, that I really understood that my own upbringing set the stage for me to grow up, to want to adopt. I mean, I certainly wanted to be married and have a family the traditional route, but I never, there really wasn't much about me that was ever truly traditional. So it makes me laugh sometimes to think that I thought, oh yeah, I'll get married and I'll have 2.2 kids and we'll have a dog and maybe a cat or maybe a bird and a white picket fence. It's like, why? Why would I think that? So I, of all people to adopt, my family certainly was like, oh God, you know, don't do that. And they had their own fears around children in foster care and who they were. And I just thought that was so funny because of anyone to adopt, it would be me. And it was the best course of action for me. It was a choice for me. It wasn't a consolation prize. It wasn't like, oh, I'm not married. So I guess I'll adopt. It wasn't like that. It was, oh, no, I really want to adopt. I want to make a difference in the life of a child. And then it ended up being two children. So I love that. You mentioned a few things just now that also fire off a couple of questions. You know, you mentioned 
the assumptions people make about the children who are in the system. And in your book, you mentioned this difference between what people call like, you know, like the alcohol babies, the crack babies. Like I had no idea also that alcohol causes more damage to children than parents who are addicted to other types of drugs. You know, now that you've been through this process twice, can you talk about that misperception and some of the other common misperceptions people have about children who are in the system? Well, the children who are in foster care are there mostly for neglect and abuse. Those are the biggest reasons. And so, but for whatever reason, I don't know, it's like, oh, the kids in foster care are there because nobody wanted them. Okay, well, you know, most people want their babies. I mean, so, okay, that part's not true. And there's also a stigma that there's something wrong with the kids, that they are slow, they've got all of these behavioral problems, they'll grow up and they won't amount to anything and, you know, just any negative thing you can think of. And those, of course, are not true. You know, will the children present with issues? Most likely, of course. And, you know, it's a very traumatic thing, even for infants to be removed from their families. And so even if they don't remember it, you know, but the biggest equalizer is a stable, loving home. That is the biggest equalizer and wish more of that messaging was out there because instead, at least in Los Angeles, I think once a quarter, the LA Times does a hit piece on the foster care system. And it is problematic, you know, that's true. But the kids are not necessarily problematic. And I think there just needs to be more positive messaging around who the kids are. And for the children who are fire starters or do act out sexually, that sort of thing, there have to be more resources in place to support those kids because they don't have to stay that way, but they need help. You know, they need therapy and they might even need, you know, meds to help them learn to control their behavior, help them deal with the trauma and the loss that they experienced. And so I just think that people forget that the children in foster care have suffered, you know, trauma and they have suffered loss. And I think if more people remembered that or even knew that, there would be a lot more empathy towards those kids. Okay, so crack babies. So when crack hit, what, the 80s, I guess, 80s, 90s, what have you, you know, devastated communities, that's for sure. And so there were, a, you know, a surge in children who went into the system. And many of those children were drug exposed, not necessarily drug addicted, but they were underweight and sure, you know, they had some challenges, but there have been so many studies that have shown that those same kids who were placed in loving, stable homes, like by third or fourth grade, you couldn't tell the difference between the kids who were born into, you know, safe and stable homes and who had not gone into the system. So that was definitely fascinating. And I think because I had that information, I wasn't worried. I didn't feel like, oh my God, I'm going to get this child and it's just going to be a nightmare from start to finish. I really think that distinction is important because I think people think about the system, right? The foster system as one unit and to focus on the children and the individual needs of the children and how the children get in the system and how each individual children child is, I think is such an important focus. And so I'm really glad you talked about that. And that's something you learn when you go through the classes, through the parenting classes. I mean, they definitely teach that. And so that's where I got that information. And then I did some research on my own. And it really is a case-by-case -case basis. And people just have to be very honest about where they are in their life. 
and if they're up for whatever challenge, but you have that even when you give birth to your own children, you never know what you're going to get. True. (laughs) (laughs) So while we're, you know, breaking down stereotypes and dispelling myths, I want to talk about stereotypes around motherhood and in particular black motherhood, because I mean, the title of your book is so amazing. Motherhood so white, because when I saw that, I was like, yes. And so I would love to have you talk a little bit and, you know, talk about your take on those stereotypes that sort of surround black motherhood, because we know there are a lot. Yes. Well, when I was ready, finally, to become a mother, I love to read and I like information. And so I went in search, okay, I'm going to embark upon this journey and I'm doing it by myself. And so I wanted to see a blueprint, like, you know, who's gone before me? Because, you know, I'm obviously not covering new ground here. And so what I learned, and I was so upset to learn this, is that in our country, you know, mother is equated to white woman. And that is so obvious. You can go to any parenting aisle and any bookstore or, you know, online and you will see book after book. And there's, you know, so many titles and there are, at the time, this is 06, you know, I don't know, three, four, maybe books written by black women about motherhood. And remember seeing anecdotal, you know, stories about black people even who adopt. So there were blogs and things, but there were, the message was clear and it was the motherhood experiences through a white lens and anyone outside of that, you know, you just sort of have to find what's relevant and then kind of check the rest. And so that was definitely very frustrating also in trying to get an an agent. I had an agent and we parted ways because she kind of felt that my message was leaning a little too heavily in the race department and she wanted me to make it kind of tone it down, make it more race neutral. And I thought, well, you're missing the point of it, but she was young white woman. And so I thought, well, maybe one day you'll get it. So, you know, in the hunt for a new agent, I was rejected by almost 60 agents and many of them wrote nice rejection notes. And as a writer, you get rejected. That's just the nature of the beast. And And they would write notes and they'd say, um, oh, this is important work, but it's too marginal. Oh, this is super important, but we'll never get it published. You know, a lot of it's marginal. Your experience is too marginal for publication. And I thought, but I'm here and I'm, I'm having a full, very rich experience. It's not a marginal experience. And so you've got these gatekeepers for magazines and movies and television shows who show the best of white women who get pregnant, you know, on accident or who, you know, rom-coms about motherhood. And I didn't see myself anywhere. And so that's like, you know, the biggest thing for women of color. We know that our experiences are not valued and it's shown to us just like on the regular. And so that was, you know, the impetus behind the title of the book and definitely became the the impetus for writing the book because I wanted to see myself on the page. I wanted to see my motherhood experience on the page because it was definitely and still sorely lacking. I mean, there are a few more books now, but in the whole parenting canon, there aren't very many books that focus on differences within motherhood. So I'll give you, you know, one specific example. And I write about this in my book. So there was a very popular TV show in the nineties, Murphy Brown. And, you know, she gets, it was an oops pregnancy and, you know, and she decides to keep her baby, you know, which was fantastic, you know, it's her choice. And that was celebrated. And yet 
you know, we knew as black women, let's say at the height of the Cosby show, cause they were on around the same time. If, you know, any of those girls had gotten pregnant, you know, it, the show, I don't know that it would have survived that because these girls were black, but when the white woman did it, then it was something like, oh, wow, she's strong, she's fierce, she's badass, she's all of these things. But when black women do it, it's like, oh, but that's what you guys do. You know, there's nothing different about this. Why would this be special? And yet it's the same thing. I mean, it's still being a single mom and accepting all of the responsibility that goes along with being a single parent. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that about the single parenting is really interesting because I read a meme that said so many people diss single moms, but why are you like beating up on the parent who stayed and the parent who's giving this nurturing? And it flipped that paradigm. But like, I know it's not your lived experience per se, but you know, in our pre-call, we talked about the stereotypes around the lack of engagement of black fathers. And it's such a stereotype and there's really cool, you know, efforts done on social media now to talk about and celebrate black fatherhood. But do you have thoughts around that? Yes. Well, you know, I just think that it goes back to, you know, systemic racism and stereotype. And it goes back to we're going to paint in very broad strokes. We're going to take a group of people and we're going to stick with these are all the ways in which they are second class citizens. These are all the ways in which they are less than. And this justifies mass incarceration and police brutality and subpar education for their children and, you know, on and on and on and on and on and on. And so, to, I think, eliminate Black men from the parenting conversation to make it seem as though a single Black mother means that there's no father around just reinforces negative stereotypes about Black people. And most often that is not the case. The father is generally somewhere and people don't marry for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, that's not just a Black thing. I mean, for, you know, white couples as well. And, but, you know, we do have higher rates of incarceration and we do have higher rates of, you know, lack of education and unemployment and so on and so forth. But even with those things, Black men tend to be very present in their children's lives. And so I like seeing more of that and way more pushback of Black women saying, you know, hold up, you know, my children's father, we might not be a unit, but, you know, he is here for his children. And like in my kid's case, they don't have a father in the home, but we have so many men around us who are very supportive and very loving towards my kids. And, you know, sure, they don't call them dad or daddy or what have you, but they call them uncle. Or even if they call them Mr. So-and-so, if they need something, I can say, okay, you know, call so-and-so for this. Or I can get on the phone and say, hey, can you talk to him about this? Or would you be willing to, you know, kind of stand in for, you know, dad, you know, on his behalf or on her behalf? And, you know, I can get six different men on the phone right now and they'd all say yes. And so black men are very present in the rearing of children, even if they are not their own. What I'm hearing consistently through this is something that I personally hold dear, which is that power of community and that we're in it together and that we are happier and healthier as human beings if we create those relationships that we can lean on that are really authentic and are supportive and are loving. So I love hearing that. I mean, here's a question for you then, because you purposely went the public you know, foster care system route instead of going 
which is where a lot of other like white families go abroad, right? But there are, I think in your book, you said 30,000 children that are in the foster care system in the United States who need homes, who need love. There's more than that. That's probably in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) That's scary. Okay. And I know, you know, we talked about, and I think this happens whether it's international or domestic, the importance of people seeing like this idea of representation. We've talked about this on our show. We talked about like the importance of being around or seeing people who look like us in role model figures. So how do we navigate that as a country when thinking about how to raise children? You know, like what does a white family need to think about when they're raising black children or across cultures? And how do we do that? And this other layer is like how much, and I'm curious, Misasha, what you think too, like you are a white presenting or like a non-black mother to black presenting children. Like how do all of these roles affect that parent-child relationship and how you want to raise children in a culturally sensitive way? That was a really long question. Well, you know, there's uh, transracial adoption is super popular now, largely because many of the international places where folks were adopting from, like Ethiopia, have closed. You know, you can't, you know, I don't know. I know for a while, Ethiopia was like, no, you know, no more. So I don't know what's happening now. But so people have turned inward and and naturally it's significantly cheaper to adopt domestically. And the children who are available most often are children of color, sibling sets, that sort of thing. So number one is to acknowledge that your child is of a different race than you. And so, so often white parents adopt children and they say, well, I love them and love conquers all and it doesn't matter. And I'm just going to love this through them. And then they move them to very all white environments, thinking that, well, we live out in the country or we're in the suburbs and this is good for all of us. Well, it might be good for you, but that might not be great for your child of color to be the only black child in all of third grade or the entire school. And so it's acknowledging that you have adopted a child of color. And then it is really doing your homework and getting to know that child's culture because it's important and it's significant that you know things about the child's culture. So if you adopt a Latinx girl, you know, you need to be saving your money because at 15, she should have a quinceanera. I mean, that's part of her heritage. And if you adopt a black child, you know, make some black friends because you will have questions. I mean, we have questions about hair and, you know, taking care of their skin. And these seem like really minor things, but they're really important. And as they get older, it becomes more important. And so you have to step out of your comfort zone, take them to the black barbershop. You know, you can't cut their hair, take them around their people. They have to be, you know, maybe not every single day, but find a little league team that is, it may not be an all black team, but it could be a racially diverse team. And, you know, make sure the coaches or the teachers are reflect back what the child sees because you want the child to grow up seeing people in authority who look like them because then they see what's possible. But if they're in an environment where everybody is white all day long, all the time, it really sends a message that, well, I am marginal because I exist over here in this very small space and there isn't anyone around me for miles who I can, you know, with whom I can relate. And so that's really 
important that people step out of their comfort zones. And with the transracial adoption community, oh my God, there's camps and there's books. There's so many things that are geared towards white families that black parents who adopt don't get. And so the resources are in abundance. There's really no excuse for people who adopt children of color to not have at least the beginning, the seeds of how to get started. I love that because I think it's, you know, there's very clear sort of points that you were making about being intentional, again, going back to that word and about understanding that your child presents differently than you and will be seen differently than you and has different needs than you. Because I, uh, you know, even as the biological mother of two Black presenting boys, it has been since I was pregnant with them, sort of a a gigantic learning curve for me to know how to be the best mother to them that I can be and to try and understand in some way, on some level, even though I won't be able to, what they are going to see in the world and how I can prepare them for that. So I think that that intentionality and that sort of daily or weekly or thinking about how they interact and who they interact with and who they see is really key. Yeah, you have to use your privilege. I mean, you know, it's a fact white people have privilege, black people don't. And so you have to use your privilege to support and to protect your children. And you have to teach them about their race, you know, about their history. That's important. They know who they are. And it doesn't take away from, you know, how much they love you. And it doesn't take away from your relationship with them. It's information that they definitely will need because once they are away from you and you know the police the teacher the coach you know the grocer doesn't see their white mom or white dad they will be treated accordingly and so that's very important that you are able to you know if you live wherever you live to let it be known hey those are my kids you know that's how you use your privilege and when they go to school, you know, you let the teachers and everyone know, those are my children, you know, so that people are very clear, oh, those are her, you know, and people will, you know, they will pause before they say certain things or before certain things are done, because they will know that, you know, not only is Mama Bear going to show up, but she's going to use her privilege to show up. And that's key. That part, I've heard it from white parents who've adopted black children. I've heard it from Misasha too, but just that like that sick feeling that I have when I hear you say the moment my best friend's kids are away from her, they are going to be seen as black people and treated accordingly. I mean, it's this sickening reality of the world right now. And that's why we want to keep fighting to go like full circle back to the beginning of our conversation. That's why this is a process. That's why we don't give up. This is why we keep working on the small things, on the big things, on the internal, on the systems, like, and we can't give up. No. And one of the ways we can, another concrete thing that people can do is vote. I mean, that's huge. And, you know, not just in the national election. I know that's the other place where a lot of energy is going is to thoughts around, you know, gosh, in a minute, it'll be time to vote for a new president. But on the local level, I mean, we elect the sheriff. And so, you know, you have to look at this person's record. And like, I don't know if you saw in Los Angeles, our sheriff was telling LeBron, you know, why don't you match money or what have you? But Vanessa Bryant was like, oh, but, you know, your people showed pictures of, you know, dead children. Like, you're not in a position to say anything, dude. And you know, we vote for the district attorney and we vote for the mayor and we vote for the county supervisor. So there's all of, again, there are many concrete things that 
black and white people can do, but definitely white people can do is show up at those city council meet the public meeting, you know, show up, raise your voice, send an email, get on the phone, and you can talk about the inequities in education or law enforcement, whatever the case may be, because you will be heard. Thank you for saying that, because I think you're absolutely right. We have as a country sort of been focused on what's happening, you know, in the next 50 days or under 50 days at the time of this recording. But there are so many local elections that affect everything that we do, school board and city council and all of our criminal justice, a lot of our criminal justice system comes directly from and is impacted by those local officials. So that is a great statement about voting not just uh, November 3rd, but voting in every election as meetings. Yeah. And not according to party lines either. Like take your time and do your research. Yeah, I know. I wholeheartedly agree. It's like whoever has my best interest at heart. I mean, that's the person you would pick to be on your team. So why wouldn't you vote for that person? So Totally. Work for you. I think people forget that our representatives work for us. Anything else we want to discuss and that you think is important for our audience to hear? Well, I want to thank you guys for having me on your show. I hope that, you know, some of your listeners will, their interest will be piqued and that they will pick up a copy of Motherhood So White. And, you know, in addition, of course, to talking about race and things with regard to school, I tried to be as transparent as I could about my many mom fails. And, you know, because again, The truth is we are more alike than we are different. And I hope that you guys, and I'm sure you will, you know, continue to have a diverse guest on your show and and to expose your audiences to different opinions and experiences because, you know, for some of your audience members, this might be the place where they encounter a diverse perspective, you know, for the first time. And that's fine. You know, hopefully it'll be the beginning of something that they continue to do. That's awesome. And we hope so. So we want to thank you. And for those listeners who want to pick up a book, want to read more about you, where can they find you? Motherhood So White is available wherever books are sold. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Nefertiti Austin or Instagram. I am Nefertiti Austin. And I have a website, www nefertitiaustin.com. And as you guys know, if you write to me, I will respond. So yes, she truly is an amazing human being, folks. She is not just one of those people who disappears into the social media ether. Oh yeah. (laughs) I love that. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here to share this conversation with us and these perspectives with our audience. Thanks for having me. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.